Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you very much. My name is Brad Elder. I'm a, a neurosurgeon at uh, Ohio State University, and I am the host of tonight's podcast. The podcast tonight, uh, we are very fortunate to have two authors from the paper entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Perioperative Spine Preoperative Surgical Risk Assessment. The two authors with us tonight are Dr. Dan Ho and Dr. Jim Harrop. I'll have them each uh, introduce themselves, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jim to give us an overview of the paper. So, so Dan, why don't you introduce yourself first, and then then off to Jim. Uh, thanks, thanks, Brad, for uh, for having us. Uh, I really am honored to be a part of this discussion. Uh, my name is Daniel Ho. I'm a neurosurgeon at University of Florida and uh, been a part of this task force to look at uh, perioperative optimization. And uh, very excited to uh, discuss um, the paper that Jim was the lead author on. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Uh, Jim Harrop here from Philadelphia, a neurosurgeon at Thomas Jefferson University, and uh, happy to be here. So I'm just going to give a real quick overview of, of what we did as a group. What we tried to do is give us uh, surgeons a better guideline, or, or when you see patients in the office, are there things we're supposed to do, and should we treat patients differently, and how to maximize their outcomes. So we, we started with three very simple questions. We tried, to, we tried to get aim this at something that we run into every day. And so the first question we had was, in patients with diabetes, and I'll break these and I'll give you the answers, so it'll make your life really easy. And uh, we'll go through all three, and then Dan and I and uh, Brad can discuss some more. But what we did is we, we graded the, the uh, answers also. And so the first question was, and we all have a large amount of diabetic patients. And the question was, is, is there a test or a diagnostic study that we could use preoperatively that's going to tell us which patients are at the highest risk for reoperation or postoperative infection? And again, a great thing. And this is, this is the one thing I tell you, it changed my practice. And what we found out was that if you test their hemoglobin uh, A1C, and if it's greater than 7.5, they have, a, they have a much higher incidence of complications. And some, some of the studies actually showed it was about three times higher. And so at least in my own practice now, I actually test all my patients and I will not operate on you if you are A1C greater than 7.5. And this is much, much more common than I, than I can believe. I mean, it, it's, I, I'm seeing patients have 10. And the other thing that's striking it's the people that, some of the people that you think are A, not diabetics or are fit um, with not a huge body mass, they'll be off. So I, I would employ the group to step back and, and actually do this test on all your patients, um, even some of your patients that you don't think are diabetics, because I think that probably is one of the things that really changed my practice. But the second question we asked is, does increased body uh, mass index, is that associated with increased risk of reoperation or postoperative infection? And again, kind of strikingly, tons of data on this, but the data was in all one direction. It did seem that as you went down, for example, in cervical spine, the literature was basically, I think there was about eight articles and it was uh, six to four or uh, excuse me, six to two that there was an association, and then the thoracolumbar spines, it got a little bit more weighted, but actually in the lumbar spine, there was more of a preponderance of evidence that, yes, there is more than likely an association with BMI with infection. The problem is, is when you get your answers, you can't go back and rechange your question. And so we asked in general, does body mass index 
operate for spine surgeon rather than specifically breaking it up to regions. So we, in, we got an inconclusive answer for that. But I think when you read our paper, which is just fascinating, you're gonna find that, yeah, the evidence in the lumbar spine is pretty significant and you probably should counsel your patients on that. And the last thing we talked about was smoking. And again, a lot of us uh, have patients that smoke. You know, the interesting thing is what does this pertain to people that use tobacco for other reasons, such as vaping, which we haven't really figured out. Is preoperative smoking associated with increased risk for reoperations? And the answer is yes. Um, and I think most of us would probably have guessed that ahead of time. But if your patients uh, smoke, uh, they're definitely at an increased risk of getting a pseudoarthrosis, or actually we, we said in general reoperation. The one thing that was kind of interesting, unfortunately, there wasn't any data on this, and so we had an inconclusive response was, if you got them to stop smoking uh, preoperatively, was that beneficial? And how long did you need to stop them, get a beneficial effect? So I think most of us try to convince our patients to stop, and I, I strongly support that. can't tell you the answer of you know, how many weeks beforehand should you have them stop before you go on to fusion? Great. Uh, do you want to make some comments? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I mean, that was a great uh, uh, summary of the, of the primary uh, take-home message. I'll just um, add this, Jimmy, I've said this. I mean, obviously, when we see patients, there are a number of different medical comorbidities that we may run into. And uh, for the purposes of this guideline, you know, we wanted to really highlight what we thought were three of the most common comorbidities that we see and that we thought would have potential impact and that are potentially modifiable, right? As Jim said, I'll just reiterate this. Uh, the A1C is one that I've uh, has made a huge impact on my practice because again, I see a lot of people with diabetes. And the nice thing about that is it was um, fairly good evidence to support a number, which is a, is a measurable number, A1C 7.5. You can talk to your patients, you can counsel them. That's a number that they can take back to their primary care doctor or endocrinologist and say, look, I need to get my A1C less than 7.5. And as Jim said, it, you know, once I started um, checking that, it was surprising that you'd have some patients their A1C is nine or 10. And um, you know, those people are going to end up being really high risk. Uh, I'll just make the comment about the body mass index, you know, and, and Jim may have said this, you know, one of the things we have obviously have to be aware of when we're doing one of these evidence-based guidelines is that the guidelines and the recommendations are um, at the mercy of the existing literature, right? And so, as Jim said, and I think many of us would intuitively think, people with morbid obesity or super, super morbid obesity are at potentially high risk for complications related, related to surgery. But the challenge is when we do these guidelines, the way the methodology and the grading of the evidence and how we come to the recommendations are such that if there are studies, even if it's not a tie, there are, even if the preponderance of evidence suggests that an elevated BMI increases risk, if there are studies of reasonable quality, even if it's just a few that say, well, even people with elevated BMI, the risk is not increased, then that's where you end up with a um, conflicting evidence, which is where we are at. And that's what Jim said is that, you know, we, even though there's a preponderance of evidence, there was a few studies or a handful of studies that did say that for per certain types of uh, surgical procedures that an elevated BMI didn't increase your risk. And so we had to be honest and transparent and fair to that uh, methodology. So I, I just, just wanted to, to add those comments to Jim's uh, great summary of this um, guideline. No, I think, I think it's a good point. You know, understanding the methodology is one of the, is, is kind of half the battle when you're trying to understand uh, the guidelines papers. And I, and I think even between guidelines papers, not all the 
the recommendations have the same sort of foundation and and how evidence is used. You know, and I know that the tumor world and the functional world uh, come up with very different classification schemes. But tell me, you know, one of the things that that sort of lays the foundation are the different levels of evidence that are present in the literature. And and what would you say if you had to break down the the manuscripts that that you reviewed? how, How many were level one, provided level one evidence, level two, level three, and on down, you know, what, what were the percentages, do you think? That, that's a great question. And, 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 you know, one of the things you got to rem- recall is the evidence, the way you grade it is also dependent. Most of us think of uh, evidence as, as one, two, three, four, and they base it on literature. But when you're using a diagnostic study, don't forget you have different metrics which to weigh things. And so you got to go back to your tablet and say, okay, so it's much easier to get a a higher level in a diagnostic study than it is in a typical paper that we read. And so I think that's the, that's one of the first things to understand. With that said, again, we didn't do very well. While you're looking at that, Jim, I'll just add, yeah, just to uh, add to that. So, uh, you know, common language, we would say, oh, a level one study is a randomized controlled trial. But for example, to put that in the context of what we're talking about here, there's not a, I mean, we're talking about A1C as a predictor of outcome. That's not a randomized controlled trial. There's not a randomized controlled trial about A1C. What, um, what Jim is saying is, is that we were looking at studies and we have a tier of, of evidence for what we call diagnostic or prognostic studies. And so probably, Jim, a lot of these, the evidence you reviewed were reviewed under what we would consider to be a prognostic study. And so how accurate was A1C for prognosis or how accurate was A1C as a diagnosis for poor blood sugar control. And so, and thanks, Dan. And again, we had a lot of level two evidence because again, we were looking at a diagnostic. For example, in the diabetes studies, I think all the articles were level two diagnostic studies. Uh, In the BMI studies, it was actually probably about mixed, half and half, because again, how how things were, were, you kind of get a more favorable rating if you're using diagnostic studies. And even in with the smoking uh, all eight of the studies that were positive were actually all class two studies. So no class one studies, a lot of class two studies, and a smattering of class three studies. So it, it just a, a little bit deeper into the diabetes, it, the, I think the, the audience may be interested are, are, are the patient population, I imagine it's largely type two diabetes. Is there a difference in your mind per, between the two different diabetes types? So, you know, it's, it's, that's a great question. And the studies didn't pull out type two versus type one. They would, they would just say diabetics. There's actually one author who's, who did a lot of the work on it with a large number of patients and he used retrospective database. So again, we're not doing as well as we probably should on these everyday problems that we see. I mean, you would think that diabetes and how to treat them, we'd have a lot of data on but a lot of it was pooled databases out of large commercial databases. Do you think the authors uh, or the of the papers that you read, were they able to control for some of the confounders that you'd see, you know, with somebody with um, an A1C that's, that's high, you wonder if some of that is, is, you know, how much of that is just, oh, I just didn't know versus overall medical compliance may not be that great. And therefore wound care is not going to be that great adherence to, you know, your, your restrictions after surgery, dressing changes. So, I mean, that's a great, great point. I, I'm actually a believer that you get your infection in the operating room. And so I, I kind of think that people with diabetes have less of ability to fight an infection. 
And I think that if your blood sugars are up, it impedes your uh, immune status. And so I, I, that's how I, I took the data rather than, than them being non-compliant. But I, I, can, I can appreciate that point of view. And, and I think I just add this, Brad. I mean, as I think it's just as you all know, but I'll just say this. I mean, uh, for all these studies, you know, these were none of them established a causal relationship, right? These were were just you know correlations, right? And and, and I'll and I'll just mention this for for those who are interested, and we'll end up digging up this paper written by Jim and looking at the evidentiary table. You know, a lot of the studies were were um, relied on large, as Jim said, large database studies like the ACS NSQIP database. And, and some of them were the NIS databases, which you can make the argument if you're talking about, like, for example, comparing treatments like surgery versus non-surgery. We know that those databases are fraught with confounders and potential, you know, data entry errors and that kind of stuff. But for this particular question that we are asking, which is the diagnosis of diabetes or not, or a lab value of A1C or, you know, what that value was and very specific types of adverse events, we felt that those studies were actually reasonable quality studies because they were able to pull thousands and thousands of patients from various different types of hospital settings, communities, geography, and whatnot. So that actually enhanced, I think, the, you know, the generalizability of that, of that, of those findings. Yeah. And to some degree, you know, studies like this, one might suspect that the bigger the, or the, the bigger the database, the more it accounts for some of these potential confounders. Is that is that what you found also the, you know, the, the, the better levels of evidence were, were found in, in the larger studies? I think it also matters what your, what your variables are too. I mean, BMI, everyone knows how to calculate a BMI now. So I think that, you know, databases are whatever you input is whatever you get out. And so I think some of the things you have to step back and say, well, how is good as my variable? And so I think the diabetes one is pretty good because it's based on two things. One is we probably got a pretty accurate diagnosis of diabetes because people knew it. And second, we were using an objective number. Uh, and so you know, that's where databases do pretty well for. Uh, the BMI ones, you got a, a little bit down, but you know, every hospital in the world looks at surgical site infections. And so again, very, very um, accurate. So actually, since a lot of residents are listening to this, I'll, I'll give you a little hint. There's something called a PSI or a patient safety index. And a, a readmission or a, a repeat surgery is a PSI. So your hospital has to report out on these PSIs. So they hire people to get the data. So if you're interested in doing a study, check out what the PSIs are because the data input is great and it's very easy to get to from the hospital. That's uh, great advice. The for for the uh, one last thing for the the diabetes aspect is seven point five. Is that for, for your practice? Is that all right? As soon as they hit that number, we're good to go. Or do they need to be seven point five or lower for a certain time frame? The way I've been doing it is I, I screen all the patients, and it's it's interesting. I think you got to look at the world and say, hey, what their problem is, how bad their problem is. Uh, like myelopathy, if you're myelopathic. I'm going to operate on you. If you're, if you're dying, you know, if you have neurogenic claudication, I'm like, well, you're, you know, you're eight. I'm going to try to get you alone. If you're got, you know, you can't get out of bed because you have a radiculopathy and you're 7.6, then I'd operate on them. So I, I use it on a great thing. You know, the other thing I do is I really think it's interesting because I, I, I use it to my patients to be like, 
you know, I don't want to just operate on you. I really do care about you. And, and we got to work on this as a team because people really get mad at you when you say, hey, listen, we got to cancel your surgery. And you <laughs> might need a couple of patients, but the ones that stay with you actually turn out to be really good patients because you're building, you know, you're building a team and you're working together. Dan, did you have anything? I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to hundred percent agree with Jim. I mean, I, I was, you know, when I started asking patients to check their A1C, there was a part of me that was a little bit concerned that patients would push back or just say, well, I'm going to go see a different surgeon. And I think as Jim said, I mean, I almost think it's like a way they, they, it was the opposite effect. They, they say, okay, I get it. You know, and you care about the outcome. And, and I, like I said, the nice thing about it is it's a number. So I'll use as an example, even though our, our recommendation uh, regarding BMI was inclusive, I mean, or uh, it was conflicting. You know, if you talk to a patient, say, and counsel them about weight loss, it's really hard for me to have that conversation because a patient might say, well, how much weight? Do I lose 10 pounds? Do I lose 15 pounds, 20 pounds? If I lose 20 pounds, what difference does that make? But we can talk about A1C and say, okay, well, your A1C is eight. We just need to get you down to 7.5 or less. And I think people really, really appreciate that. It's so funny. I have no problem talking to people about their weight. I, I, I actually, I, I actually have a, I have a, a general internist who's very into nutrition. And, and I find that you're, I mean, people know if they're overweight or not. And I've just never had a problem. And I'm like, got to get you weight down. And so they tend to be pretty good. And I actually, the other thing that I'm a huge advocate for, if patients ask me, you know, if you look at the bariatric literature, bariatric literature is probably some of the best literature out there. If you're interested in evidence-based data, their ability to, you know, prevent death, diabetes, cancer. I mean, the numbers, and it's very well documented. So I, you know, I have zero problem telling my patients, listen, if you look at your overall, one thing you can do for your life is to lose weight, you know, as it's, as surgeons, as spine surgeons, I think I try to send that message home. I'll just add this, uh, um, you know, uh, for the, in the interest of time for this podcast, you know, we really wanted to focus on this paper by Jim, you know, this was a five-part guideline series. And I think there's a plan to uh, discuss one of the other papers, but when I, I think we're not going to have a chance to, is we, we did a whole section on bone mineral density and osteoporosis, um, uh, workup. And, and I, I'll just, just make the comment I'm very much along the same lines, my patients that I'm concerned about being at high risk for osteoporosis, you know, um, in that guideline that was authored by John Dimar, he's a, a, a very well-known respective orthopedic spine surgeon who's done work in the area of osteoporosis, you know, um, having that conversation saying, look, we're going to check a bone density scan. And this is the numbers we're looking at. And if you're, if you're under this number, you know, fine. But if you're over, then we're, you know, I'm really concerned about your risk of a major complication with surgery. And, and here's how we can potentially intervene. And I think patients understand that. So, so with the last few minutes, I did want to ask a little about this couple questions about the smoking aspect. So we've all been there when, when patients say, you know, you, you say to your smoking, yes, but I don't smoke that much. So was there anything in what you read that, that gave you any sense that there's a dose dependence to this? I only smoke a couple cigarettes a day, pack a day versus half a pack a day. It did not talk. I think you're right. I do think there's a dose dependent curve, but that article was just yes or no. Did you smoke or not? And so again, it's one of these things, you know, I'll give you another question, which I'm very interested to see what Dan says. Do you test people if you smoke or not? And, and I'll yes, give you sir. I go, I go, I don't do that because again, I kind of believe we're a team tell the truth and we'll work together. And so, 
I've had insurance companies demand it, but I usually don't do it. Yeah, I uh, great question. I I do test people for smoking for fusion surgery, elective, non you know non urgent, non myelopathic patients. You know, I counsel them. I talk to them about smoking cessation. And I do test them, but I tell them up front, I say, look, you know, um, it's not that I don't trust you, um, but, you know, we're talking about potentially significant complications related to smoking use, you know, not just um, before, but after surgery. And I said, let's just test you so that you and I both know that we're both committed to this, that, you know, that you're going to stay committed to smoking cessation, not just before surgery, but after surgery. I fortunately haven't had any pushback. And I will say, um, Jim, kind of like what you said about the A1C, you know, I've, you know, the patients that, that quit smoking and, you know, they, 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 you know, I, a lot of them say, you know, thanks, you know, I've been wanting to quit, but I just needed a good reason and someone to, you know what I mean, to, to, to push me. And this was that good reason. So, um, uh, fortunately that, you know, that's, that's worked out for me, but I, I won't say that that was not the, you know, that was not in the guidelines, whether or not to test or not. And uh, I, I would say that's not standard among you know, all of our, you know, my partners, but that's what I do. So with, with, uh, with the last uh, minute or two, I want to ask one final question for both of you. What, what is the study that is needed next in this, in this area? Great question. I think we've answered the question about surgical site infections and obesity. And I, I don't think we understand. I mean, I, I think that's a problem. But if you could say someone, if you get down to X pounds or you need to this and gave them a realistic number, I think that would be very important. Yeah, I agree 100% because I think that uh, as you as you know as you said Jim we have conflicting evidence which you know the truth lies in there somewhere and so we need that study. I'll add one additional one that just came to mind and we d- we didn't have a chance to get to it as part of this uh, task force. I hope we get to it at some point cuz we will have to do a a reupdate is uh, preoperative anticoagulation. So patients that are on chronic preoperative anticoagulation, you know, um, you know what indi- you know for what indication and then when to stop it and when to resume it and what are the, you know, the perioperative risks associated with That's a complicated one, I think, but that's one I, I, I'm going to guess, Jim, you probably run into that all the time. Sure. Yeah, I think that, or, or even I'll give you the second question is when do you restart them? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the one I struggle with is do you start AFib less than you start someone with a, a DBT? Right, right. right. Well, we're right at our time limit. I want to thank our two authors, uh, Jim Harrop and Dan Ho, for joining us tonight. Uh, I want to recognize the tremendous amount of work that goes into writing one of these uh, guidelines papers and commend the author for their hard work. And I thought we had a great discussion. I think this will be very well received. So I wish uh, both of you a good night, and I wish all of our readers a good night. Look forward to our next guideline session. Thank you so much.